A healthy heart is imperative to life. Just ask anyone who's experienced the trauma of a heart attack and endured bypass surgery, and they will tell you just how true this is. We know that the heart is one of the most important organs in the whole human body, yet with all the technology that we have at our fingertips, and with all the advances in modern medicine, we still do not have a way to see the health of the heart apart from doing a heart catheterization. There is no such tool that exists to be able to scan the outward parts of us to see what's happening within the core of our hearts. This is why so often heart attacks sneak up and catch us by surprise. For we know that a bad heart can kill us in an instant. In fact, the Center for Disease Control says that about every year, 790,000 Americans have a heart attack. What that means is just about every 40 seconds, someone goes into cardiac arrest. That's a staggering statistic. Heart health is imperative to a healthy life, and in the biblical sense, this is also true as well. Yet when Scripture speaks of the heart most often, it is not speaking of the organ that pumps blood to the rest of our organs. It is speaking of the inner being of who we are, the heart, the mind, the will of someone. The heart, then, is descriptive of who we are, the core of our very being. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. In other words, the heart is the source of all that we do, whether good or whether bad. And the heart determines one's direction, and therefore we are instructed to guard our hearts from doing evil. Indeed, in the Shema, it was God who, through Moses, commanded the Israelites, saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. God's instructions are clear. Love God by following his commands and keeping these commands at the center of of your heart or your lives. Doing so is practicing preventative care, keeping one's heart free from being defiled and corrupted. But if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that no one here is perfect and that loving God with all of our heart is not an easy endeavor for any of us, even though we're called to do it. We are sinners And we are tempted by everything under the sun that could lead us away from following the Lord. As our famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, We are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our hearts can oftentimes lead us astray and get us into all kinds of trouble. So when someone tells you you should just follow your heart, that's not always the best advice that you can give to someone because we're sinful and our hearts are corrupted and they can, in fact, lead us away. And our psalm today, Psalm 51, is a testimony to such things because this psalm attributed to King David is a psalm of confession in which he acknowledges that he himself has sinned against God, and he needs God to help make his heart healthy 
again. You know King David. He started out as a ruddy shepherd boy, the youngest of all the children of the tribe of Jesse. He was chosen, according to Scripture, by God, not because he was the most handsome or the strongest, but because God looks at the hearts, the things sometimes that you and I can't see in others. He was chosen then to succeed the wayward king, King Saul, and to become Israel's next king and to, to rule with righteousness and with justice. We know David as the one who slayed Goliath, the Philistine giant. He's the token hero of the Old Testament because he relied on God's strength and power and not his own. But even though we hold David in high esteem for a great faith and trusting in God's power, even David fell away from God. In fact, on one particular occasion, rather than going to war, which is what the kings always did in battle, um, David decided to stay home. He stayed home. And he sat upon his roof, and as he began to look over the kingdom, his eyes looked over to a nearby roof. There he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath on the roof. His curiosity got the best of him, and he sent one of his servants to bring her to his palace. This woman, as we know her, Bathsheba, is a married woman. But this didn't stop David from pursuing her. Instead of ruling with righteousness and justice, David abuses his power and he commits adultery, which leads also to an unwanted pregnancy. And then he has to devise a plan to cover it all up. No one could know that this king, God's chosen one, had done such evil. So David encourages Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who happens to be a commander in David's military, to come home from war and to be with his wife. But Uriah is full of integrity and knows that he is not going to do such things when the country is at war. He wants to be faithful to the king, and so he refuses to do what David asks him to do. And because of this, David decides he has to go to plan B. And plan B is not a good plan because it means that he now is going to send Uriah to the front of the battle lines where he knows that Uriah will surely be killed. This is premeditated murder on David's part. And he asked his commander to send him to the front lines and that when he was killed to notify the king. That's exactly what happens. Uriah dies honorably in battle. And then David takes his wife Bathsheba and makes her his own wife. No one would ever know. No one would ever know that this child to be born wasn't his. So, rather than confessing the truth to Uriah, her husband, and even to God, David tries to cover it up. And by covering his tracks, no one would ever find out about it. They would not know about the affair and the pregnancy or his premeditated murder. Proverbs 17.20 says, One whose heart is corrupt does not prosper. One whose tongue is perverse falls into trouble. It's true for David. You see, like a band-aid covering an open wound, David believed that as long as his sins were hidden, no one could see the bleeding. But a band-aid, as we all know, can't heal an open wound. 
It only covers it up so that you cannot see what is visible to the eye. You can't see the ugliness of it if it's hidden. Everything seemed to be just fine for David. No one knew what was going on until God ripped that band-aid right off sending the prophet Nathan to the palace. Nathan comes to David and he tells him a parable about a rich man who wanted a poor man's only possession, a ewe lamb. Now the rich man had everything at his disposal. He had many sheep. To, to, to pull his own from, but instead he desired this poor man's lamb, and so he took it from him because he wouldn't sell it to him. And not only did he steal it from him, he took that lamb and he cooked it up and he served it to one of his guests. Well, this infuriated King David because he knew that this was not just, and he cried out that this man deserves to die. And not only that, that the poor man should be paid back four times as much than what was taken. It's in this moment that the prophet Nathan looks David right in the eyes, and he says, David, you are the man. David thought no one had seen what had happened. He thought that everything was in the clear. But God knew the filthiness of his heart God refused to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to his disobedience that he has seen and heard in David. God confronts him with his sin and he tells him there will be consequences for this. In fact, the child to be born will not survive. This crushed David physically and in spirit because he knows that his sin has brought this upon Bathsheba, And upon this child. And so he cries out to God, owning up to what he's done, seeking God's forgiveness in the midst of it. For he knows that a corrupt heart has led him away from his Lord and that he needs to return to the Lord rather than trying to run away from him. Proverbs 23, 12 tells us, Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. David must now open up his heart to hear God's instruction and then allow God's instruction to change his heart. And so he prays out to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Praise for mercy for grace, for a second chance, but also for healing. He cries out to the great physician who alone can heal him and make his heart healthy again, for he acknowledges his trespasses and his iniquity. They're ever before him. And rather than blaming others, he acknowledges that it's all his fault. He knows that he was born into sin and that he cannot change On his own. Because sin affects his whole being. And he understands too that God desires truth in the inward being. Truth in the heart. A truth that affirms our desperate need of God. For God to save us from our sin 
the sin that corrupts our hearts and our minds and our wills and our lives. This truth leads us then to humility and acknowledgement that without God, we have no hope. Whereas the absence of truth deceives us to believe that we're just okay. Proverbs 27, 19 tells us, As water reflects the faith, so one's life reflects the heart. You see, if we think that we're okay in comparison to everyone else, we begin to justify our sin before God. That's precisely what was going on in the time of Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were self-righteous. They were sinners too, but they looked at tax collectors and sinners, and they basically said, God, thank you that we're not like them. Rather than recognizing and dealing with the sin that existed in their own lives and seeking that forgiveness. Jesus warns us of such things. He warns them of such things because he knows that self-righteousness puts on a front and it covers up sin. Just like David tried to cover up his own sin and it doesn't want to expose the filthiness and the dirtiness of our hearts. It's a reminder from Jesus that while others may not see the dirtiness that resides within our hearts, God can. But when we accept the truth that all of us are sinful and broken, we then come before God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Like David, we too beg God to be merciful to us, to cleanse us from the filth that covers and infiltrates our hearts, to erase the sins that are written in the story of our lives, and to create also in us a clean heart. David's prayer is our prayer. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sin, purge me with the hyssop, and wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. David needed quadruple bypass surgery. He he needed all the plaque that was blocking his arteries to be removed, all the sin that corrupted his heart and separated him from God to be made clean. He knew that his heart was unhealthy, And he begged God to change it, to create in him a clean heart and to put a new and right spirit within him. David is begging God to create, to bring into existence something that was not there before. A good, pure heart. Isn't that what God does? Creates? Isn't that how all of the story of Scripture begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates something out of nothing. God creates living beings. God creates all the animals, the land and the sea and everything within it. And God creates human beings in his own image, man and woman. And he creates them from the dust of the ground and he breathes the breath of life into their nostrils. God creates. David is asking God to create a clean heart, to put a new and right spirit within him. This is asking God to make his mind and our minds and our wills open and oriented and fixed and steady towards God. 
It is asking God to do the very thing that our sinful selves cannot do on our own. It's asking God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to change us from the inside out. It's asking God for a heart that is free from anything that alienates us from Him. We are asking, essentially, for God to be at the center of our hearts, the center of our wills, the center of our minds, the center of our lives, that everything else would be on the periphery. And that everything on the periphery would be affected by what's at the center, God. In essence, we cry out to God asking for recreation. But if our hearts are left untouched, we will find ourselves returning to the very sin that turns us away from God and His will for us. And we know, left our own devices, that we will always choose that which is not good for us. But to have our hearts touched by the God of steadfast love and mercy helps us to live as new creations that have been changed. God's ways of recreation are mysterious because the Spirit of God works on us, works within us, and begins this process that we call sanctification, the process of becoming holy, different. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. Every week we gather as the church and we confess our sins before God. And every week you hear the pastor declare that your sins have been forgiven. Not because I have the ability to do that, but because we trust in a God who can. And we believe that. But I often find that somewhere between Sunday morning and the rest of the week, we recognize that we fall short again and we need that confession. And sometimes we tend to think that God couldn't possibly forgive us for some of the things that we've done. Even though we believe it up here, sometimes we don't believe it here. That's dangerous. Because what we preach and affirm from Scripture is good news. And it's good news for the very reason that our hearts doubt that we can be forgiven. Because the good news of the gospel is that our sin, no matter how big we may think it is, whether it's murder, adultery, idolatry, is no match for God's grace. Amen? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save you and I from our sin and to create new hearts within all of us. And he came to restore us to the joy of his salvation for us. And he comes to sustain us with a willing spirit, the Holy Spirit, who resides within us. We have a little advantage over David because the Holy Spirit only came upon them in power and left them. He had prayed for the Spirit to remain. God has given us this gift after Pentecost. Jesus himself declared forgiveness to a paralytic. He declared forgiveness to a woman who is believed to be a prostitute. And even as he was being crucified, Jesus himself cried out to God that he would forgive us because we do not know what we are doing. Those who wanted him dead did not know what they were doing. And truth be told, every time we sin, you and I don't know what we're doing. 
Jesus' death, therefore, is a sign of God's mercy, of God's steadfast love that will not let us go. His blood spilled for us is His seal, set upon our hearts as the hymn proclaims, claiming us as His own, purging us from our sin, and making you and I whiter than snow. Like David Acknowledging our helplessness and confessing our sin is the path to God's mercy. Covering it up or pretending it doesn't exist isn't the answer. Our sin will always be before us unless we repent before God and turn away from it. That God can heal us. That God can forgive us. And so that God can create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within all of us. I want you to know this. Whenever you do something against God that you know goes clearly against God's call in your life. When you sin against God and you begin to feel bad about it, when you know that it's ever before you and you can't let it go, I want you to know something, church. That's God's grace. It's God's grace because he's not going to let you sit with it as it is. He's calling you to turn back to him and to receive his grace. That's good news. And in Jesus Christ, who offers us that grace, our hearts are reclaimed and restored, recreated, so that we, like David, can proclaim that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. In our own forgiveness, we are called to share this good news, which we've experienced with those who've never experienced it, And even more so with those maybe who have, but who seem to think that God couldn't possibly forgive them for what they've done. God can forgive David for idolatry, for adultery, and even for murder. Then God can certainly forgive us too, restoring us to the joy of his salvation. And as the psalm says, as forgiven sinners, our lives are meant to point people to God, to Jesus, to teach transgressors God's ways so that sinners will turn to him at all times. There's no doubt that a healthy heart is imperative to life. And Jesus tells us that he has come that we might have life, abundant life, and have it to the full. He wants us to have healthy hearts. In fact, God wants us to have a heart like his own. So that when others see us, they see a reflection of God living within us. So friends, today, you've confessed your sin. God has forgiven you of that sin. Believe that you stand forgiven. And in that forgiveness, praise God that he blots out our transgressions and eliminates our iniquities. Praise the Lord for that. And also, in response to that forgiveness, to that cleansing, guard your hearts above all else. For everything in life that you do flows from it. Let us, as the people of God, let our lives point others to God 
the one who has forgiven us, the one who has given us a healthy and recreated clean heart and who calls us into Christ's abundant life together. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.